Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. On the Think Humanities podcast, we bring you a variety of guests, Chautauqua performers, our Kentucky Humanities board members, historians, and scholars. Today, a conversation with Gwen Henderson, an archaeology educator and professor of anthropology at the University of Kentucky. She's also a Kentucky Humanities primetime reading time scholar, and I'll talk with her more about that part of her life in just a moment. Uh, Gwen, welcome. Thank you very much. Tell me about uh, your background, I was going to say your interest, uh, your, um, your passion for uh, anthropology and, and, and archaeology and all things uh, old uh, <laughs> that started pretty young in your life. Yes, it did. <clears throat> I uh, wanted to be an archaeologist. Um, I knew the term archaeologist and wanted to be an archaeologist when I was... Um, in in junior high school Hmm. I had always been interested in dinosaurs nowadays every kid has their favorite Jurassic dinosaur and so forth and Triassic dinosaur and I was back there in the long ago where it was just dinosaurs Hmm. I thought I thought us the ichthys the one with the feathers was so cool I just just really in love with dinosaurs so in fourth grade when we all had to do um, scrapbooks some people did horses, dogs, you know, cats. I did dinosaurs. I was just always kind of a weirdo like that. And then um, my mother and father gave me a book, Relevance of Books. And in that book, it was called The Reader's Digest, Treasury for Young Readers. And in it was a story about Pompeii. And in that story was a sidebar about being an archaeologist and that was and that was it i mean Mm. that was it many people come to archaeology i have found later from walking plowed fields and finding arrowheads and spear points but i never did that um i was just interested in in old things in history in old things and i guess the older the better i remember telling somebody once that i was going to find the missing link and i was going to find the Maya, the people had disappeared. Of course, that was a sensationalized kind of mm-hmm. come on. And we all know, of course, that the Maya people who built Tikal and Copan and Palenque still live in the Yucatan, and they didn't disappear at all. But, you know, back then when I was a kid, it was, it was sort of the, the fantastic part of it. I guess it's the discovery that... Um, we're all interested in the discovery, or many people are interested in this discovery. I think people enjoy detective stories for that reason and storytelling, a good detective story or a whodunit kind of thing. Um, but um, for me, it, was, it went beyond that. Um, my high school guidance counselor told me I couldn't be an archaeologist because mm. I was a woman. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Now, um, now, what I, I can understand that um, this being would have been told, in the '60s. Yeah, but you know, and you you can't be a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, that that's that was pretty obvious, sure. then, right? Duh. But an archaeologist, what 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 was it? The same uh, well uh, I, intelligence applied to archaeologists as doctors and lawyers, and 
Well, when CEOs I, and movie right, moguls? Right. I think that part of it was, I grew up in a very small town in southern Delaware, and it was a company town. DuPont had a plant in Seaford, Delaware. And, you know, it's possible that my guidance counselor didn't even know what an archaeologist hmm. was, mm-hmm. frankly, now that I think about it. But what, what she said to me, was how could I move with my husband with an archaeology degree when he was transferred, you know, to with his job? And I thought to myself, this is kind of, thank you for your vote of support, but I don't even have a boyfriend right now. So, I mean, you know, I don't think we need to plan my life yeah. around this, you know, <clears throat> possible husband. And I remember going back home um, being very upset about that. And my mom said, you can be anything you want to be. Good for her. And so I just... I hope your dad said that too. He did. He yeah. did. They were both... They were a little disturbed that archaeologists don't make much money, <laughs> but they were very excited about the fact that I did a lot of traveling. Yeah. So they thought traveling was okay. Um, there was one time I remember, um, there was a newspaper article about some work that we had been doing in um, North Central Tennessee. And I had shared the newspaper article with it. And in that article, I had told the newspaper person it was just so exciting to f- touch something, to think you were the next person to touch it since the person who had lost it or thrown it purposefully away. And my dad read that and looked at me and said, do you really mean that? Kind of like, this sounds so very hokey to me. And I, and I said, yeah, Dad, I do really mean it. You're excavating a trash pit or you're examining a fire hearth something that's hundreds and hundreds of years old and no one else has touched it seen it even knew about it since the people who threw it away or closed up that house or filled in that hearth and it's it's the significance and power of place and objects together and you're the next person it's as close as we can get to touching people of the past, you know, aside from getting in some kind of time machine and going back and seeing it. You went to the University of Delaware. I did. Uh, but, but, and what brought you down here um, to Kentucky? I came on an archaeological project. Mm. Um, it was 1977, and the Southwest Jefferson Flood Wall Project was being um, conducted by the University of Kentucky in Louisville. And I was looking for work. I was a yeoman archaeologist. I had graduated in 75, and I'm looking for archaeological field work. Mm. This is the days before Google, you know, and the web. So it was word of mouth. Or you would go to university department bulletin boards and see if there were any jobs. Well, a friend of a friend of a friend had told me that the University of Kentucky was looking to hire people. So I called, and they said, sure. So I went. And the project was, it was a big project. There were a lot of people on it. Um, It wasn't the time period of archaeology that I was particularly interested in, but they were interesting sites. And it was a challenge. It was a new experience, uh, broadening and deepening my fieldwork experience. And um, that occurred as I was thinking about where I would go to graduate school. So this was the, the, um, uh, 
you said flood wall. Yes. From, from 37? From that? No, or way no. beyond that? They were building the, the uh, U.S. US Army Corps of Engineers was building a flood wall hmm. in southwest Jefferson mm-hmm. County, Kentucky. And the soil that they wanted, see, yeah. the soil that they wanted for mm-hmm. the flood wall was, was going to impact mm-hmm. these very significant, uh, very old um, archaeological sites and, um, and, and uh, ancient burial ground. And so we were there to um, uh, research and excavate before they came in with the bulldozers. Yeah, you know, this is something that I don't think the general public uh, realizes or understands. And I had to uh, uh, understand it uh, uh, myself uh, that before a, a road project is led, or, or let's say uh, we're in Lexington, so Centerpoint, uh, for example, or some other uh, downtown, uh, or it doesn't have to be downtown anywhere, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the builder or the, the, the company is charged with the responsibility of asking you uh, to come in and, and do what? If federal funding is used. Ah. You mentioned Centerpoint. There mm-hmm. wasn't any archaeology. I see. So it, it, it's not uh, just just uh, private, Federally, private, uh, oh, I see, and federal funds. Federal funds, federal licensing, that ah. kind of thing. So the kinds of things that cultural resource management, archaeology um, investigates are things that are federally funded like highways, bridges, water treatment plants, post offices, um, uh, FAA, some kind of runway, airport runway sites, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. What, what about a historic site <clears throat> that, uh, let, let's just say, uh, out of uh, thin air, the Waveland or mm-hmm. Boonesboro or uh, something that's not federally sanctioned or funded, uh, do, do they also have to, under their qualifications, meet, meet um, an archaeologist uh, study? There is a state antiquities law that oh. says archaeological sites that are recorded, hmm. the ones that we know about, um, are supposed to be preserved and protected, and if they're threatened, mm-hmm. they need to be um, mm-hmm. studied or what have okay. you. But um, there has been, for example, archaeological work at Waveland. Mm-hmm. There has been archaeological work done at uh, Boonesboro State Park. Um, archaeological work, well, um, the... The book fair mm-hmm. out at um, the horse park mm-hmm. in preparation for the uh, World Equestrian Games. They mm-hmm. built those buildings out there and encountered in, um, I don't think it was at the place where mm-hmm. we had the book fair, but one of the, one of the venues that they built, they encountered an historic cemetery. And the Kentucky Archaeological Survey was asked to go out and recover um, the cemetery, um, study it, remove the bones, rebury, rebury the bones, mm-hmm. figure out who was, you know, who was buried there, study them and that kind of thing. Yeah. What, what are the, what are the statutes uh, or the rules on, uh, rural cemeteries? Hmm. Uh, ones that might be on private property or on, uh, uh, something that was found on a farm or, Maybe a family rediscovers, uh, as my family uh, did in down in Barron County. Um, some 
I, I hear different things about how strict some of the regulations are, and then if it's on private property, what, what, just clarify that, if you would. I know that in Kentucky, it is considered, a place is considered a cemetery if human remains are buried there. You don't have to have a headstone. What that means then is Indian burial mounds, Indian cemeteries, uh, cemeteries of African Americans, um, Euro Americans, Latino, anybody, any place where a human is buried is a cemetery. And those cemeteries are protected, and you cannot disturb them. You cannot destroy them. Um, it is now a felony to mm. do that. Prior to the Slack Farm incident in Union County, it was only a misdemeanor. But the looting at the Slack Farm site out in Union County. And what happened there? Tell us about that. In 1988, I think it was 88. Um, men who were interested in recovering ancient American antiquities to sell and trade went to the landowner and said, we want to dig. And the landowner said, okay, this is how it's going to be. You give me um, $1,000 a person, I'll give you six months, you can dig whatever you want. I think the landowner thought that if he could get somebody to dig it all up, then the problems that he had, had, and they were chronic problems, of people coming on his land, digging up stuff, mm. and leaving holes, and his farmers were losing their tractors in the holes and that kind of stuff. He thought it would be ameliorated. It was not. Um, the men had been digging for several months, and of course it was locally known that they were doing this, and finally it became more than a couple of local guys could just handle. They just knew that it was the wrong thing. They brought it to the attention of uh, the state police. The state medical examiner was brought in. David Pollock at the Kentucky Heritage Council at the time was brought in, and four months was spent um, documenting the destruction mm. at Slack Farm of the human remains and everything else that was that was documented or that was disturbed there. What had been found? What they found were um, cemeteries. These people who had lived there, um, archaeologists refer to them as the Caburn Welburn people. They're um, a prehistoric farming people mm. who lived in that part of Kentucky from about 1400 to 1700 AD. Mm. And this was the largest village of that culture. The looters had um, encountered the cemeteries, and these people had laid their um, their dead family members out in rows, just like in any historic cemetery today. And once the looters knew where the where the graves were, they could just go right down the line. They were looking for um, smoking pipes. They were looking for whole pots. They were looking for arrowheads and uh, selling them, um, selling them on the antiquities market. Um, the, the outcry of... Um, of archaeologists, but particularly Native Americans, about this looting. 950 graves were impacted by this. Um, the national attention that was focused mm -hmm. on this um, was a significant reason why um, the Kentucky burial laws were changed to be a felony instead mm -hmm. of a misdemeanor. Um, I have talked to folks who were involved in that 
as the um, director, um, David Pollack and Cheryl Munson of the University of Indiana University were the directors. I worked there, but I was just, um, you know, a volunteer. Mm. Um, they feel very strongly that the national, the Native American Graves Repatriation Act of 1990, which is a federal act that preserves um, Native American um, graves and also um, objects of cultural patrimony, meaning things that are important to Native peoples spiritually and culturally yeah. and historically. Uh, they think that that um, bill may, not, never, may never have been um, mm -hmm. passed if it hadn't been. That Slack Farm sort of was a galvanizing event mm -hmm. and it resulted in the NAGPRA. So you um, you discovered the University of Kentucky I after being in Louisville, uh, mm -hmm. went to grad school, uh, mm -hmm. uh, went uh, for your doctorate. Um, I started for my master's because mm -hmm. I, frankly, didn't have enough courage to go all the way on. So I got my master's and then worked for about 10 years here in Kentucky, mm -hmm. um, getting a variety of experiences in uh, archaeology in the field, but also in public archaeology and archaeology education, and then came back to school at UK um, to get my PhD. So when the, the distinguishing uh, uh, terminology there is public archaeology, that means you're working uh, in the public sector, That's do, right. doing these surveys, and no, uh, other other than that? Public archaeology, a public archaeology, well, you know, you're right. I suppose you could say that cultural resource management archaeology is public archaeology because you are working in that sphere, um, working um, in a public sphere. Um, I guess it's all applied archaeology as far as that goes. But I'm using public archaeology in a sense where the archaeological work, the archaeological research that we do, um, a research project, a public a research project, is public archaeology because the educational values of that project are just as important as the archaeological research discoveries and scientific um, goals are. Uh, public archaeology means talking with landowners about the archaeological sites they own on their private property, encouraging them to continue to be stewards. Public archaeology is writing for the public in a way that you're not using all kinds of technical, boring terms, but you're writing it in an engaging way that people can appreciate what you've discovered, but you haven't bored them to death with all the nitty-gritty of an archaeological report. Public archaeology is involving um, interested people, children, um, adults, volunteers, um, amateurs, museums, anything. It's uh, public archaeology exists in that in that in that place where archaeologists and non-archaeologists interact. And there are a lot of archaeologists that prefer to be more, Prefer to, prefer to stay more in the archaeology realm. And then there are those of us who, like those of us who work at the Kentucky Archaeological Survey, we consider ourselves to be public archaeologists. We specialize in knowing the best ways to get um, what it is we've learned about Kentucky archaeology into the hands and hearts of, of 
private citizens. What do you tell people uh, when they ask you the difference between archaeology and anthropology? I tell them that archaeologists study people who can't talk to you straight away, Mm. and anthropologists will talk to you straight away. Archaeologists talk to people one step removed by looking at the patterns of the objects that the people used in context where they left them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, let me return to, uh, because it's uh, maybe not odd or ironic that uh, I have highlighted proof, she's looking at the page, uh, (laughs) what you mentioned a a moment ago, uh, that you, this is from your uh, bio on the Mm. University of Kentucky uh, website, uh, she's particularly interested in researching the life ways of the prehistoric farming cultures of the Ohio Valley and the history of mid-18th century indigenous groups in that region. And you just mentioned um, the, the Slack Farm, 1400 A.D. Mm-hmm. So um, that goes back a ways. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, it does. And, 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 and I focus on the more recent time. I mean, the project that first brought me to Kentucky, that was 6,000 yeah. B.C. Yeah. There's no prehistoric pottery there. I'm interested in, pre- in analyzing prehistoric pottery. So I was like, well, you know, they're not going to hire me to analyze any pottery on this project because there's, no, there's mm. hardly anything to find. Yeah. But the, those sites were amazing. But they were old, old, 6,000 yeah. B.C. So uh, w- when you talk about prehistoric farming cultures... Mm-hmm. What was the difference in a prehistoric farming culture and a culture that might have occurred then 100 or 200 years later or whatever? I mean, what, 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 is, what, makes, what makes the farming culture prehistoric other than the date? Uh, but, but what describe those people to me and, right. and, and how their farming techniques were different from, from 200 years uh, later. in the future. Right. Later. So let's see. Okay. Well, prehistoric farmers grew some of the same things that those historic farmers grew. Corn, beans, squash, tobacco, sunflower. Well, they didn't grow sunflower, I guess, the historic folks. But the prehistoric folks grew sunflower. Um, um, prehistoric folks grew sunflower. Um, and, and the tobacco that, that indigenous people grew was uh, certainly packed a greater punch than, than tobacco that we grow today. Okay. Um, these folks live in small villages. Um, there's an awful lot of parallels, frankly. They, um, these folks, the role of um, women was to be the farmers, which is a little different from Euro-Americans because the men are the farmers. Um, in, a, in, a, in an indigenous, ancient, prehistoric farming community, the men go out and hunt, uh, the women might trap, um, but their role is um, to to plant and harvest the corn, beans, and squash. Um, they um, they live in sometimes circular villages, sometimes not. Um, the houses are uh, rectangular, sometimes multiple families. Um, we know, for example, um, the most recent project that. Uh, David and I have worked on, which was funded by the National Science Foundation, was up at Fox Farm in Mason County. And that site was occupied for 300 years, from about 1300 to 1600. And there were three circular villages sequentially. And then the entire ridge was covered by a village. 
towards the end. And we can see um, how the houses um, became larger. There was a there was a public structure there. Um, different different rituals occurred there because the kinds of objects that were found that we found in inside of it were different from what we found inside the houses. For example, there were there was evidence of multiple fired pits down the center of the public structure. And underneath the fire, when we removed the fire, there had been posts, poles. And the poles had been set and then pulled out, soil packed in, set again, pulled out, packed, set again. So there were multiple um, um, episodes of pulling and setting posts that were not significant structurally for holding up the house. And having done some ethnographic and ethnohistoric um, research for Eastern Woodlands peoples, um, we found some mention of poles, sacred poles, that were um, that were in longer public structures, and some of these poles actually stuck out the top of the structure and had um, animal, maybe clan or or lineage uh, symbols on top of them. This was something that we had never seen at um, at a site of this of this culture and time period. The culture is the archaeologists refer to as Fort Ancient, and the Fort Ancient people up prehistoric farming group groups um, lived from the um, let's see the falls of the Ohio mm-hmm. up to where Parkersburg West Virginia is today hmm. and then south of Columbus and then here in Kentucky um, it goes south to about where the knobs are south mm-hmm. of Madison County or the Kentucky River drainage, depending on how you want to go. So in this area, these farming people, um, they they grew their plants, some native, some not. Corn and beans, of course, are not native, but the sunflower certainly is. It had been domesticated in Kentucky, you know, millennia before. Um, hunted the same kind of animals that we hunt today, deer, bear, elk, turkey. Well, perhaps not elk. Um, Buffalo. Well, Maybe. The, the buffalo, no. the buffalo were here in around nine thousand BC and so forth, mm. and they left because mm. those were the um, the megafauna animals, and they left as the ice is retreating, mm. the mammoths, mastodons, mm-hmm. the big, all those big animals left, and that would mm. be the big bison. Yeah. The bison that we think of, the ones on the plains, those kind of bison, regular bison, those guys didn't come back across. Uh, into the eastern, uh, across the Mississippi and into the eastern woodlands until around the 1600s. So we think of buffalo, and certainly Mm -hmm. the settlers, the early pioneers who came to Kentucky, Mm -hmm. particularly central Kentucky, you know, saw bison all over the place, but it wasn't something the Indians hunted uh, at that time. As a scientist, do you, um, are you opposed to exposing one of these sites, Mason County, mm-hmm. to uh, uh, to the public in a way that they can, I, I guess, I, I don't want to cheapen uh, th- this, uh, 
but in, in you know a state park or a an educational facility because I don't think we have anything like that. That's a legitimate in, question. In Kentucky at all, do we? I mean, we have we have forts and we but we don't have uh, we don't have a Native American. We have one. Yeah. What is that one? Wycliffe Mounds. Yeah. Out in western Kentucky. Okay. I know I've heard of it, but haven't been there. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it, that... It's a state park now. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, originally or wasn't okay. initially. Is it wor- worthy of a visit? It certainly is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. They have great exhibits. The mounds are uh, in good shape. The... Um, and Carla Hildebrand, the archaeologist there, mm. has been there for many years, and she can tell you everything mm-hmm. that you ever wanted to know mm-hmm. about Wycliffe and the uh, farming peoples in western Kentucky, contemporary with the people who lived in central Kentucky, but they organized their their villages and towns mm-hmm. and farmsteads differently from the ones here in central and eastern mm-hmm. Kentucky. And they also organized themselves politically and economically differently. Those folks out in western Kentucky um, had a stratified social system, and chiefs were hereditary. If you were the son of the chief, you were the chief. Mm -hmm. In central and eastern Kentucky, political power, chiefly power, was not hereditary. It was earned. Mm. And so it's the difference between what Mm. archaeologists refer to as uh, out in western, western and central and southern Kentucky, mm-hmm. uh, they're called chiefdoms, and in um, central and eastern Kentucky, they're called tribal peoples. Mm-hmm. Would you like to see more of these uh, areas uh, open to the public? Or Yes, I would. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, well, and there is, the University of Kentucky, you know, owns a sacred circle here in Fayette County, It's called uh, Mount Horeb Earthworks, and staff and faculty and university um, organizations and so forth, it's a park. Mm -hmm. And you can get a key from the university, and you can hold events there at that Uh, park. uh, But um, it's not open to the public. Is it Mount Horeb uh, Road? Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'm familiar with that area. Out out Mount Horeb Pike. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. right, okay. That was um, a piece of property that um, a group of amateur archaeologists donated to the to the university, and they maintain it now, you know, as a park. Um, yes, I think that having having an ha, for, I think that is it is important for all of us to have an opportunity to see where people lived long ago have it be uh have it be in a way so that we can appreciate their way of life in context Mm -hmm. and so having mound sites preserved having village sites preserved and at the same time having interpretive um, either pamphlets or uh, interpreters Mm -hmm. or didactic rails anything that gives people a sense of, of the diversity of the human experience. It's, it's, it's really like the mission of the Humanities Council, right? Mm-hmm. To understand the diversity of what it is to be human in all its fashions, yeah. in all its forms. Not just people living now, but people who were Kentuckians 
centuries ago. Well, that's a perfect segue. You, you set this up uh, 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 as our last uh, discussion item on your work uh, as uh, one of our scholars in our primetime reading time program, and uh, you've been doing that since about 2009, or maybe earlier than I that. I think it's uh, been, earlier. been earlier than that. Well, we, we, the, the date's L- not long important. Long ago. <laughs> but I would imagine that there might be listeners to this uh, podcast who are um, somewhat fascinated by uh, your background in archaeology and anthropology, but I mentioned primetime, and they might go, what is that? Mm-hmm. So how do you tell people what you do for primetime, and and, and how fulfilling has uh, has that role been for you? It well, I'll start with that first. Last question first has been immensely fulfilling for me. Um, I've had an opportunity to see people discover books. I love books. I love reading books. Always love reading books. Um, and now. Well, I, I will say, I'll put a plug out for the New Books for New Readers series as well. If it weren't for the Kentucky Humanities Council, I would not have found my voice as a public archaeologist because the Humanities Council gave me an opportunity to write for the public. So I see these books that are written and, and, and prime time, you kind of, when you hear that it's adults and children reading children's picture books and talking about humanities topics, Mm. it seems absolutely impossible. And yet I'm here to tell you that I've I've been to many programs as um, a discussion leader or scholar, and to watch these kids' faces, watch the parents, watch the kids' The parents are watching the kids as the kids are explaining their answer. Mm. The kids are watching the parents as the parents are explaining their answer. Families getting together, talking together about courage, friendship, kinship, respect, integrity, responsibility, and using that book as the focal point means you can have, it almost sometimes can become an entrada to talking about an issue that has been bothering the, mm-hmm. the kid at school but doesn't know how. The parent knows it's been a problem but doesn't know how. So, for example, we just finished, um, just finished up a program in Garrett County. And we were talking about this one book, Chrysanthemum, about a little girl who has a very long name. And she starts to be made fun of by her schoolmates in this book. And one of the girls who was in the program, at the program mm-hmm. said, I have people make fun of me when I'm in school. And we said, well, so you've, you, you've been the butt of bullying. She said, yes, I have. But my friend Sarah makes it so... I, it's okay. And so we said, so so your Mrs. Twinkle, another person in mm-hmm. the book, Sarah is your Mrs. Twinkle. And she said, yes, she is. So it was an opportunity mm-hmm. for her to talk about it and see the good things that had happened yeah. in, in, in Chrysanthemum. So this program is, is so enri- it's been so enriching for me mm-hmm. to see 
this, the power of books and the power of humanities topics. Um, I'm just so glad that the Humanities mm-hmm. Council decided to become a part of primetime and that the Kentucky Humanities Council continues to pursue this and support and and uh, offer this program yeah. for people. Well, it is. Um, it's marvelous. It and really and honestly, um, before I uh, came here, mm-hmm. I, I was not familiar with it. Mm-hmm. I, I had been involved in in reading programs and mm-hmm. literacy and learning mm-hmm. programs at some uh, schools. Um, but this is so unique. Th- it this is. is this is unique because uh, it, it's either the parent, uh, grandparent, or guardian right. uh, of the child who has to attend along with the child, or or, or they're not eligible to to be in the program. And I think that's that makes it unique. I don't know of another program that that requires that. This Me is an neither. after-school program, and and Gwen, you know that we just received a a really nice uh, grant from. Yes. Uh, the National Endowment, uh, who I think recognizes, um, and I'm sure if we searched, uh, and we'll find out soon that other uh, humanities councils around the country uh, received like grants or mm-hmm. similar grants. Uh, it, it is a, uh, and and gosh, you know, today we need that discussion about oh. those themes and 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 a little nudge to read those books more than ever, don't we? Totally. And what I think is interesting, too, and we've had conversations about this during our um, primetime training, because we train new scholars and new storytellers and library coordinators and so forth. We talk about how these books provide an opportunity to talk about difficult subjects, but because the protagonists are not people, but are Characters. monkeys or oh, yeah. or yeah. owls or um, mice mm-hmm. or pigs, mm-hmm. the story of the three, the, mm-hmm. the tr- true story of the three little pigs. Mm-hmm. So you have these animal characters representing certain kinds Mm -hmm. of people. Mm -hmm. So you can talk about issues relating to bullying or racism or tolerance or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. Using those animal characters as foils, and it's not nearly as personal or as human, and yet you're getting at those same kinds of issues. And you can talk through and around and about, and you can wrestle some of these mm. you know, issues to the ground. And if you're a critical thinker, you can kind of go, oh, right, this mm. is the issue that yeah. people are having. Well, thousands have been through the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're um, in, have been in 81 of our 120 counties. Our goal uh, this year is to be in all uh, oh. 120. I mean, we really want to try to reach uh, kids. And really, uh, the other effort, if you're uh, out there listening and, and, and want to know more about it, uh, please uh, contact us, number one. Number two, if you happen to be uh, interested in sponsoring or, or funding some of these programs in schools, uh, the, the grant I mentioned is just a, a mere pittance of uh, what it really requires to cover the state of Kentucky, and it's so important. So uh, thank you for your work. Uh, uh, in, Thank in you. your in your in your day job and, and uh, <laughs> as a scholar for prime time 
and a great volunteer at the Kentucky Book Fair. What a great! That was yeah. such a wasn't it yeah, fun, it's Bill? A, it's it a great, great day. It's uh, I, 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 uh, people that listen uh, have heard me say I think it's one of the best days uh, Kentucky has to offer. You know all those Kentucky authors. Yeah. It's just so thrilling to see them, and it's books. Yeah, you, I mean I. I'm, you know, I can't help it. It's yeah. books. You can't. You, some goodness. people like to purchase all kinds of other. I just yeah. pr- go to the bookstore. I can just drop yeah. lots of dough because yeah. books are just great. Yeah, they take you places that you never even dreamed of. Um, they, good books, change your change your life. Sure. Yeah, they change your point of view. They open up perspectives that you hadn't really ever thought about it's not just entertainment you know it's it's learning but also experiencing and a really good writer who can transport you like that Mm. you just you know books are friends so i'm gonna um i might uh, begin to end up a lot of these podcasts with uh, a question about books what's the book uh, that uh, you read that changed your life oh man well, I, I mean, I guess the book that changed my life was that short story on, you know, on archaeology that was The City That Died to Live. Um, although there were, there's, gosh, one book. I don't know. There was a book that I read in college. Um, it was a, it was a, a natural history of, um, of New England. And it gave a perspective on the human and environmental. It was called Changes in the Land by William Cronin. And it gave me a perspective on human and environmental um, uh, intertwinedness that um, you, you know that sort of on a head level, but this was more of a visceral level to see how people and the landscape are so um, intertwined. I don't know. Yeah, well, that's good. You've named one and, and one story, so that'll, that qualifies. Good. Uh, Gwen Anderson, thanks a lot for being our guest on Think Humanities. Thank you so much. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud.